This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom in Mind, a podcast about maternal mental health from conception, pregnancy, to birth and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who've made it from struggling to wellness, and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. We discuss very real struggles that can sometimes be hard to hear, but these are stories that need to be told so that moms and families can know that healing is possible. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Thank you for being with us today. Welcome back to Mom in Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. We welcome you to this episode in honor of NICU Awareness Month in September. We are going to be talking with Fawn McCool, who is a licensed clinical social worker based in Portland, Oregon. She's going to be talking a little bit about her own experience as a parent through the NICU and the work she is doing now to support other parents through the NICU experience to make sure that they have the support that they need. We're going to touch on a couple of topics. What are the common stressors of having a baby in the NICU? What is it like to be in that environment and go home with a baby who has been in the NICU for a little while? And also, what are some of the common strengths and resilience that she sees from parents who've been through this experience? And of course, we hope to get you some information on how we can better support parents and children who are going through this experience. A little bit more about Fawn. Her professional credentials include certification in interpersonal neurobiology through Portland State University and Mama Care Certificate through Shoshana Center. She is the creator of Interpersonal Neurobiology of Perinatal Mood Disorders and Birth Trauma, an online training for professionals that explores the impact and practices of attachment and bonding, including development and interventions for families affected by perinatal mood and anxiety disorders and birth trauma. She offers clinical therapeutic services through IANA Counseling. She also sits on the board of NICU Families Northwest, as well as volunteers with Baby Blues Connection. She is the mother of two girls. The first, who was born when Fawn was 29 weeks pregnant. After eight weeks in a Southern California NICU, Fawn vowed she would work tirelessly to change the mental health outcomes of NICU parents nationwide through advocacy and education. So let's meet Fawn. Welcome, Fawn. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be on today. 
Yeah, I'm really happy to talk with you about NICU families. It's one of these topics that I've been trying to get covered here. And you are gracious enough to offer your time to really give us some information and advocate for NICU parents. And I'm so happy that you're doing this with us. I'm like, talk to me all about my trauma. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, that's part of it is being open to sharing and not everyone is open. Not everyone needs to share, but I think it really does highlight what it's like, but also that, you know, it's just so nice to hear that people can recover from things that feel like they would be very hard to recover from or work through. Or I'm a work in progress. I'm still in recovery. Sure. <laughs> and honestly, I just am so grateful to this maternal mental health world that we're in, Mm -hmm. that there are other therapists and mental health professionals that are willing to say, no, I had this too. And that's why I do this work, you know, because I feel like as therapists, sometimes, you know, you're kind of have this feeling like, I I shouldn't, don't tell people what Mm -hmm. you've experienced or it, you know, will make you seem like you can't do your work. So I'm grateful to this community for being so open and welcoming for that. Yeah, I totally resonate with that. I feel like, again, you don't have to share your story, but if you've been through something, I think it deepens our compassion for what other people are going through. 100%. Yeah. So please do start wherever you feel comfortable in terms of your story and how you came to be in this work. Yeah. So at the time I was pregnant with my first living in Los Angeles. And I was working for Child Protective Services. So working in a high stress job to begin with already like so much secondary trauma. At 28 weeks, we were in Portland, Oregon, which is where we're going to move and have this baby have a water birth, unmedicated water birth. Mm -hmm. And so we were here signing our lease and I stopped feeling her kick. And it just, something felt wrong. I could immediately sense that something was off and, you know, got back to LA, saw my OB and he's like, eh, maybe she's just tired out of room. Did an ultrasound was like, oh, it looks like she's got tons of room. She's probably just tired. She was too young to respond to that, you know, the little buzzer test. Mm -hmm. So he sent me home on bed rest. I knew something was wrong. Like mm-hmm. I immediately got to this place of just like, it felt like depression. Like I felt like I was losing my baby. Mm-hmm. I was just went home in bed rest. I just started crying uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. And then I looked on the internet and someone was like talking about how, you know, their doctor sent them home and they're, you know, they had a stillborn. And I was just like, this is, I knew it was wrong. And so I called my doctor and I was like, something is wrong. Like something's wrong. And he's like, okay, let me get you in to see a specialist. Okay. Well, so I'm waiting and waiting for the specialist appointment to come through. And I called him up. I think it was maybe even the next day the timeline gets a little funky because you know, trauma. And then, so his secretary was so rude and she's like, we are waiting for an off from your insurance company. We will call you when it's Mm -mm. ready. Mm -mm. Day just went on. And this is the moment in my story where I'm like, thank God I am such a pushy broad. Like, thank God my mom, <laughs> like that I was born with this personality. And then my mom, like, always taught me how to like advocate and stand up for myself and never take anything. Because otherwise, I'm like, okay, doctor, whatever you say. And my baby would have died, you know. And so mm. finally, I called up and I was like, listen, 
I'm checking myself into the hospital if I don't get in to see the specialist. And I called the specialist. I was like, I'm checking myself into the hospital if you don't get me in. And he's like, fine, your insurance hasn't cleared. So you bring $500 in cash and we'll give you the last appointment of the day. And I think these details are really important because part of post-traumatic stress disorder is when you don't have faith in the medical community that's working with you. And Mm -hmm. so that is one of the major, like one of the things that can, you know, result in some major mental health issues in the NICU. And so that's why I'm like, this is part of my story because it's like, obviously, the ball is being dropped. Like I'm not feeling safe or heard or mm-hmm. taken care of or supported. So I have my $500 and I called my husband and I was like, come with me because something just doesn't feel right. So I pick him up from the bus stop and he, we go to the specialist and everything was looking fine. And then sure enough, there's, what is it called? Reverse blood flow. She's not getting the oxygen or the nutrients that she needs to survive. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you go straight to the hospital right now. And I will meet you there and I will call your OB and he will meet you there because more than likely you'll be delivering this baby now. And we're going to do a stress test. If she's in distress, you will not have time for the steroid shot to the lungs and that lowers her survival rate. You need to be prepared that you might not be able to have this baby. (laughs) So I get to the hospital, she's in distress and they're like, yeah, you're, C-section immediately. Mm. I mean, they just started shaving me, which was felt again. It's like when things are not being explained to you and your body is just kind of like being touched without permission, you know, like no one told me that you're going to be shaving me for the C-section. I know that sounds so silly to some people, but I was not prepared for this. I'm having a water birth in Portland, Oregon, unmedicated, don't forget. So in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. I was like, what is happening? This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. 
I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. And that was it. No time for the steroid shot. I was told she had a 50% chance of survival and she was born the day she turned 29 weeks. Wow. And I was terrified. And I remember having her and the neonatal doctor at the time was held her up to my face and said, here's your baby. She's not healthy, but she's here. She's alive. Kiss your baby. Because I'm going to take her right now and she's going to need some work in the NICU and you'll see her there soon. And so I remember she held her up to my head and I kissed her head over and over. I just couldn't stop kissing her head. I was mm-hmm. just, I remember just so shocked, so in love. And then they took her and I sent my husband with her because I was just so scared and didn't sure. want her to be alone. And yeah, I was just uncontrollably sobbing. Uh-uh. And I remember the anesthesiologist was like, give her something like, or I'm going to give her something like she's too worked up too, you know, too upset, you know? And I remember thinking in that moment, like, are you kidding me? Like my baby might live and you're like, I don't know. It felt like yeah. a judgment. It probably wasn't. It was probably just like her blood pressure is skyrocketing. Who knows? But in that moment it was like, are you judging me right now? Anyway. Oh, and then right. they knocked me out with a bunch of drugs. Wow. Again, not really and, asking you. No, no, like there was no moment in any of this in which it was like, I felt like anybody gave a what about me. Mm -hmm. It was from the jump about keeping the baby alive, which is great, but also something I'll speak to later that mother's mental health should be at the forefront of all these decisions as well. And if it's not, then you are not going to have a healthy baby either, ultimately. So And that's the thing in the NICU. It's like nothing comes before this baby and that's important. It's so important to keep the baby alive. I'm not saying it's not, but it's also what about this mom, you know, who just had this intense thing happen that's so different from what she thought and no birthing classes, no preparation, no nothing, you know, and is told that her daughter has a 50% chance of living. Yeah. That's it's crazy. Inc- incredibly intense. Incredibly <sighs> intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right. then mm-hmm. I couldn't even go to the NICU until I could walk across the room. That Those were the rules. So she was in the NICU. I was in recovery and they would not let me even see her until I could get out of bed and walk across the room after having a C-section. Right. Right. That's ridiculous. <laughs> It's like, ridiculous. How are are you kidding me? You're gonna keep my baby from me? And again, I'll get into what that does to a person. Yeah. Yes. Physically. Right. But like I remember walking across the room in total pain, just like taking all the drugs I could because I was like, I just need to walk across this room and then just collapse into a wheelchair. It'll be fine. Cause I would do anything to see this baby. You know, like so I walked across the room post like right away after Mm -hmm. having a C-section. Yeah, right. There are so many levels of just not not cool, 
about this. I have heard other people describe this scenario and it sounds like a common practice that just makes zero sense. Again, it's like the reasoning, well, we have to protect the babies. We can't have you collapse in there. And it's like, okay, but I'm going in in a wheelchair anyway. Mm -hmm. Don't keep me from my baby. Right. And it was the, this is kind of like being jumped into the NICU because it's a control. It feels so power and control. Mm -hmm. We're in charge. All your parenting instincts, all those maternal instincts out the window because mm -hmm. we're in charge now. We will tell you what's best for your baby. You don't tell us. And it's so funny. I listened to your other podcast with the gal who lost her baby in the NICU a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. The podcast was on and her experience was so different. She felt so... And I always remind myself that that is an experience in the NICU that people can have. They can have these really like these experiences in which they feel held and they trusted the doctors. But, you know, I'm like literally coming. It's not even 48 hours since I've had this, had to fight to get this baby even like looked at and mm -hmm. taken seriously, like my issues taken seriously. And so no trust. There's no trust there, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I'm now hypervigilant to that, yeah, to noticing sure. all the ways that they're not taking care of us or yeah. her. So, but anyway, yeah, it's kind of like being jumped in. It's like, okay, here's the rules, you know, uh, you when you enter her, into we'll tell you when you want to hold her. Uh, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So they're telling you, that's what you're saying. There's all the instincts, all the things you want to do. You have to refrain from all of that and just follow directions. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Because it's like from the get-go, you're like, I want to hold my baby. And you can't even visit them until you walk across the room. You know that you should not be walking across the room. You just had a major surgery. Mm -hmm. You could fall because you're on all your eye out of your mind. Right. Like, I mean, this is not a moment to be like walking across the room, but just, but you know that you have to see your baby. Those are your maternal instincts. Yeah. And so you're just going to do this thing that is so wrong, like it's just against, but it's your rules, they're in charge. And it continues, right? With when the baby gets changed, the diaper changes, how you can, when you can hold your baby, how you can hold your baby. There are all these rules. And it's like throughout the, my NICU experience, I had to fight to hold her, mm -hmm. like constantly beg and plead. And they would say, no, do you know how many calories it takes? To keep them warm like they're not taking enough in and you're going to keep them like their body temperature it's going to set her back you know I mean it always felt to me like a fight in there mm. to just do what I knew was right for her mm -hmm. right you had a lot to deal with just you yourself are in a fragile and compromised state trying to get mm -hmm. in and see your daughter who's I'm assuming also in a fragile state and just trying to get connected to her. And yeah, and there's, exactly. There's lots and lots of stuff in the way of doing that. Right. Yeah, a lot of people yeah. mm -hmm, regulating mm -hmm. everything. Right. A system, right. There's this regulating system in place that you're constantly butting heads with. Yeah. Right. So I guess I have some questions. Just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the prevailing idea has and is that like all of the measures that they're taking in the NICU are to, like you said, protect the baby, make sure the baby stays alive. And that, that mm -hmm. that's what was happening 
during your process, the, mm-hmm. the birthing process. But you're saying, well, what about the mom? What about the parents who are involved mm-hmm. here? What's being taken into consideration there? And I think every time I hear a story similar to this is that the medical part is so paramount, or at least it seems to be so paramount that those other needs just aren't taken into consideration. I'm assuming depending on the NICU, depending on what their policies are, that they're doing their job and their job is to support the baby and it's not necessarily to support the parents. Right. 100%. I just think we don't support, you know, we don't think of mothers and fathers, mental health in general and labor and delivery, but certainly in the NICU, you are taking a back seat and no one is trained in there about mental health for parents. I mean, the social workers are so spread thin and Mm -hmm. oftentimes they're so inundated with just doing, you know, helping parents like learn around filing for disability. And Mm -hmm. do you want to stay at the Ronald McDonald house? I mean, I know Mm -hmm. in Oregon, we have so many families that are coming from rural communities where there aren't NICUs and there's just one social worker for all these families. Mm -hmm. But even the way the NICUs are set up. I mean, some NICUs do have individual rooms. We have quite a few here in Portland that do. My NICU did not. You're in this room. So I enter this room after walking across my recovery room, and there's like 20 babies in there. Wow. And that, if you think about the way a a NICU is, I don't know if you've ever been in one, but it's 21 to like, three, four pound babies, all in isolates, all with their own monitors, beeping constantly. Mm -hmm. These lights, you know, the lighting that's not good for you. It's noisy. There's nurses everywhere. There's equipment everywhere. It's incredibly overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Now imagine being a new mom, not being able to even hold your baby to your skin. Mm -hmm. And that's how you're attaching for the first time. Mm -hmm. Right. First, so long it was like my body didn't even make her I felt like she was just created in this isolate you know it was so mm-hmm. hard to even just imagine that she came out of me you know mm-hmm. sometimes I still <laughs> struggle with that six years later well that makes sense to me because you were sort of having to just deal with the emergency situation and how really mindful can you be during an emergency where you just go into this kind of hypervigilant, hyperdrive of, okay, save the baby. And you sort of have to disconnect a little bit from the experience in order to cope. Mm-hmm. Like you just can't be fully aware of everything that's going on because you can't. Right, exactly. Um, and you're describing a really traumatizing situation through the, the whole process. It was crazy. (laughs) And then you're in this room packed with people and it's just Mm -hmm. after this horrific traumatic situation Mm -hmm. and trying to come down and be mindful in a place like that. Yeah. Like, I mean, it creates more hypervigilance, right? Yeah. And eventually, I mean, I was losing it. I was losing it. Like, I would notice people not washing their hands for the full minute before you came into the room. And I would be like, you didn't wash your hands. The nurse, nurse, they didn't wash their hands. Mm. You know, like it was like full on crazy town. Like I was like, this person is, because in my head, 
those those intrusive thoughts were this is the person that's going to bring in the flu that kills my baby mm. right because everything mm-hmm. like you're you're just surrounded by people coming in and out and babies at different stages right like not all babies are two pound babies mine was right. two pounds two ounces mm-hmm. some are smaller but a lot are bigger you know mm-hmm. And a lot of parents handle this differently. Some people were expecting the NICU with twins. And so they're mm-hmm, coming in and they're mm-hmm. joyful and you're just mm-hmm. surrounding by all this. And it was so overwhelming. And eventually yeah. I was moved to a room where there were just six isolates. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that half the room, it was so small because half the room was diagnosed with MRSA. Thank mm-hmm. God I didn't know that or I would have lost my mind. But this yeah. is the room in which I felt like. I could actually bond with my baby and heal mm. because oh, I had there was less quieter. stimulation. Ah, oh, right, right. Yeah. Less stimulation. Yeah. I actually got to know the other people in that room. Mm-hmm. They were more long-term. So we were, felt like we were in it together. Yeah. You know, one of the other parents captured the first time, like I have a picture of the first time, like I got to hold her in what I thought was skin to skin time because nobody explained to me that it was not over your nursing bra like you take off your shirt but Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and teach me how to do that Mm. yeah it was different experience when it was quieter and Mm -hmm. smaller groups and yeah so how long were you in this process how long was your daughter in the NICU and and yeah she was in there for eight weeks Mm -hmm. eight full weeks and in this time I think I told you we were signing our lease in Oregon. So we had to move out of our LA apartment. And so we were homeless, (laughs) sort of. Our home was in Portland and our baby was in LA. And so you're from California, so you'll understand a friend of ours offered her, offered a room in her house to my husband Mm. and our awful cat that would pee on things. So, I mean, that is a friend, right? Right. (laughs) And so she offered us, because we couldn't stay in the Ronald McDonald with this evil cat. And that I couldn't get rid of and still have and love to this day. But, oh, my gosh, when you're postpartum, there's something about your animals that just right. <laughs> makes you think evil thoughts. So I was commuting from Santa Monica to Pasadena oh, every day to see her. That's quite a distance. Yeah. And yeah. it was intense. Yeah. And there were moments where I'd be in traffic for hours mm-hmm. trying to get to her. And so, yeah, not knowing how I'd find her. And, Yeah. Right. So that's a lot. And I'm sure there are so many other facets to your story and your experience and the move and all of this. I'm assuming that this experience for you really kind of pushed you into making sure that other parents don't experience this or trying to support them through it. Totally. So then she was released from the hospital four pounds Mm -hmm. after eight weeks and we were moving to Oregon. So we took this four pound baby and we left the hospital and started on our way to Oregon. And one of my dearest friends in the whole world came down and actually sat in the car with me because I was so scared to be alone with a newborn without monitors or anything and make this journey in a car to Portland. So then we moved here and then it was like, I could not take my eyes off her the entire car ride. I just mm-hmm. remember like looking at her and being like, I just can't take, I'm just so in love with her. Like, but also just so scared and hypervigilant right. and traumatized. Right. And then we moved to Portland and I had to quit my job because she was medically fragile. She could never, mm-hmm. she couldn't be in a daycare and mm-hmm. as many NICU families experience. And for those of us that have the privilege, like the means to do that, that is like the greatest privilege in the world. So 
you know, but then it was just the isolation mm-hmm. and just being like a mental health professional that could not figure out what just hit her and right, the right. shame yeah. of that, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. dealing with that and the nightmares and the flashbacks and just mm-hmm. not knowing what was going on with me for two years until I mm. saw someone who was like, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And I was like, you mean the thing that only veterans get? <laughs> what? Uh, uh-huh. Right. <laughs> you know, as many Nikki families say, and it was like, well, yeah, you're having all the signs. And I was like, how did I not notice that? And right. And because you don't, <laughs> you're in it. When you're in it, it's really hard to see. Because trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're just walking around like, yeah, just, crazed out of your mind and so yes it was when I was on my healing journey after finally somebody telling giving me something to like a diagnosis which you know I'm not into pathologizing but it gave me it named it to tame it right like I feel like that's exactly what it did and I was able to figure out what was going on and really start working on learning how to regulate myself and then I took this certification in interpersonal neurobiology And that really taught, really resonated with me. Just the physical changes that the NICU had on my brain and my nervous system and really helped me to understand what I went through physically, why I was putting on like 40 pounds in the course of eight weeks in the NICU Mm -hmm. and why it was like, you know, physically like not being able to regulate myself. And it was that that series of classes that really kind of gave me the push to really focus on educating this NICU community about what's happening in their bodies, but also just like all the changes that we could be making to better serve these families so that they're not leaving with PTSD diagnosis because that is ridiculous and preventable. It's 100% preventable. Um, Are you seeing that that is a really common experience? Like having a PTSD mm-hmm. diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Well, 15% of moms are leaving a NICU at 30 days with post-traumatic stress disorder and 8% of dads. Yeah. And then an additional 11.7% of mothers and 4% of fathers with symptoms of mm-hmm. PTSD. Mm-hmm. So yes, that yeah, is. And then common. depressive symptoms, up to 63% of NICU moms are just displaying depressive symptoms three to five days after the NICU admit. Mm. So, yeah, it's high, way high. Right. And it doesn't need to be. Right. No. I mean, I'm thinking of all the ways that this could be prevented a lot. There are a lot of ways that this could be prevented or at least not as intense if possible which like maybe require a whole other separate podcast to go into all of those details because <laughs> um, it's a lot. Or they could just take my class. <laughs> oh, right. right. They can take your class. So I want to get into just a little bit of just, you said some of the common stressors you listed in your own experience of having a baby in the NICU is all the worry, the concern, things being out of your control. Um, Number one, separation from baby, mm-hmm. Right. Or even the briefest separation from a baby is going to result in a measurable HPA response, right? Across all social species. Like this isn't just humans. Like you separate, I think all the studies that have been done with mamas and rats, their baby pups have been like mama rats and their pups have been separated and they've measured 
the endorphin levels. They have dangerously high decline in endorphin levels, huge HPA responses. So it's not, I mean, your the physical changes that your body is going through just in the briefest separation is huge. Right. Incredible and stress. Because parents mm-hmm. need to be able to see, hold and touch their newborn. That right. That is how attachment and bonding happens, right? Yeah. And during these lengthy NICU stays, this isn't happening. There's so much separation that happens. Mm-hmm. Right. And from what you said, the I don't know all of the, the medical reasons for that, but there are some. But that can be, I think from what you're describing, that can and should be mediated in a different way so that right. people can attach and connect. 100%. And I think a lot of it is just the way the NICUs have been designed, right? It's just hospital, like rooms and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like when mm-hmm. now the new NICUs, families can sleep in the rooms with their babies. Uh-huh. That's huge. Right. I mean, the nightmares I would have when I would leave her every night, the tears, leaving her every night, I would just cry mm-hmm. and cry. Like mm-hmm. I didn't want to leave her. Right. And now you can sleep in the NICU with your, you know, basically live in that in that room with her, with, you know, the preemies because so they're setting things up so that it's more family centered, but a lot of yeah, NICUs not, are not right. set up like that. Right. So all of these effects, there's potential for PTSD, there's difficulty with attachment or bonding because, because yeah. you literally can't hold them very often. Well, and just not even just in the mom, like I love this quote by Quislino. He says, giving an infant non-sedating morphine has the same soothing effect on the separated infant as the reappearance of the mother. Like that is how calming (laughs) it is to have your mom with you, right? Mm -hmm. Like taking Um, morphine. Mm -hmm. Like taking morphine and vice versa because our nervous systems mirror each other, right? And so I can only imagine that it would be the same on the mother. And that is how intense, I mean, I'm kind of like harping on this for a while, but that is just how intense it is to be separated from your baby for any length of time, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, right. so like... Are these are effects that are happening both in the NICU, but I just keep thinking of, you know, okay, well, your trip home was probably not the most common trip home from a NICU, but still there's that anxiety. There's the, oh my gosh, they're not on all of the supportive stuff. I got to figure out how to do this on my own now. Oh, totally. And yeah, then, the after stuff was right. intense. Well, she was our first too, because other parents in the NICU were talking about balancing family life, right? We have siblings at home and during cold and NICU or cold and flu season, sibling visits are limited, right? Not everyone lives near an NICU either. So you could be driving hours. And if you have other kids at home, that really limits the amount of time that you get to be with that baby. Right. There's financial stress when you're in the NICU. And so a lot of people have to face the, am I going to take my maternity or paternity leave now or uh-huh. save it for when they're home? Or do I have to quit my job? And not to mention... I had a lead nurse I used to call my nugget the million dollar baby. She would say they're all million dollar babies. And I was like, what the heck is she talking about? Yeah. And then I got the bill and she, no, it was a million dollar bill. No. And so, yes. Oh yes. So the financial stress is intense. Like they're I can't not, they're tell not you expecting you to pay a million dollars. 
No, it was covered by insurance for me. I had great county insurance, (laughs) but for a lot of people, they are having to pay quite a bit, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I know. know. That's just so there is that financial stress. And then afterwards, again, it's like, do I have to quit my job now because the baby can't be, you know, and a lot of parents are leaving my nugget. We were so lucky she didn't have to leave on oxygen or a feeding tube, you know, no G tubes. But like a lot of people are coming home with medical equipment and trying Mm -hmm. to find someone that can care for a baby with medical equipment. And returning to work is just not a possibility. So, so much financial stress. And again, it's just that loss of parental like autonomy. Like you're basically taught how to care for your baby in the NICU way. Some people, this can feel really comforting. But then when you get home, right? Mm -hmm. Very regimented, right? Which really leans into that (laughs) hypervigilance. That can Uh really exacerbate. But also when you leave and you no longer have that, you're kind of lost, like Mm -hmm. without a nurse telling you what to do and when to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm a white woman, right? I'm not even a person of color in the medical environment. So imagine being like a person of color in this medical environment. And if your experience has been safe, you know, what your experience with doctors are like, all my neonatologists were all white, you know, no people of color on staff. Mm -hmm. So there's that piece too, because there's a huge portion of the NICU that are babies of color, right? And so that's probably a whole nother podcast as well. Yeah, absolutely. As its own episode, for sure. (laughs) You know, I'm just thinking this is an incredible amount of stress during a massive life change and where things are all very, you know, vulnerable and precarious and, you know, you're not really sure what this path is going to look like. You're taking things day by day because that's the only thing you can do you know, on some level, maybe worried about the future, but it sounds like there's often not, well, this is what's going to happen. It's more like what it's going to be like tomorrow. Um, Yeah. Which is... That's parenting too, in a way, right? Sure. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But even more so with an Mm -hmm. AQ baby, you never know if you show up and your baby is had a turn for the worst, they're going to make it. I remember coming in one day feeling really good about her progress and how she was doing and that lead nurse that called her million dollar baby said to me, you know, you really shouldn't get your hopes up. Babies die in here all the time. Oh my gosh. And then started to talk about a book she read written by a dad. No, just baby. I mean, I'm telling you. (laughs) It's like I couldn't have even I couldn't even make this stuff up. (laughs) I mean this should be like one oh one basic kind of training. Things not to say to parents who have babies in the next right that Seems. But now that I'm out of it, that's her trauma, right? Sure. That's, can you imagine telling a parent that their baby died or being a nurse and getting to know this baby for months? These babies can be in there for months and then have it pass. Like, yeah. I mean, you're speaking to multiple levels of stuff. Yes. They need to be getting more support too. The system isn't right. set up to support them either. There no, are so many no. issues here. <laughs> Um, So many. And it's so nice that you can step back and see that that's her trauma. And also, right, you're speaking to a systemic issue um, that affects people for months, years, Years. potentially. Years. I had a flashback the other day and was Mm -hmm. like, really? Uh Still? (laughs) Yeah, years. If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. 
I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. So, I mean, what strikes me about it, though, like with your story and all parents who deal with this is you can't get through this without some sort of strength, without some sort of resilience, without some sort of drive. I'm curious about what you see in terms of that. Like what gets people through this? I think that, so have you heard of Wilma Rudolph? She's Mm -hmm. a gold medal winning Olympian in track and field. She was a preemie, born in, I think, the 50s or 60s. I'm sorry, I should know that. But she's born in four and a half pounds in a rural part of the South. And she was also an infant polio survivor. So mm. she had infant paralysis. Mm. And there's this quote that she says that said, my doctor told me I would never walk again. My mother told me I would. And I believed my mother. Mm. And that's what, as a preemie parent, you know what your kids are capable of. You've Mm -hmm. literally watched this child like grow from someone like a being that you would hold in one hand with tubes and wires everywhere and you've watched them beat the odds. And preemie parents are told of everything that could go wrong with them at all times, right? 50% survival, so most likely have ADD, most likely have this. And just every year they grow, they just beat the odds. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. you'll always tell your child that they'll walk again because you know that they will. I reached out to this group of NICU families in Portland and asked them, like, what are some of the strengths that we all possess? Like, what is special to being a NICU parent? And one person wrote that the size of the body does not reflect the size of the spirit. And I think that we have this 
and another person wrote, we have this drive and determination and stamina and mm-hmm. we've learned that we can make it through anything. Resilience for sure. Right. 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 And so that's just the preemie way. And I think there's also something kind of beautiful about being a preemie parent. You really learn to focus on the individuality of the child. They're Mm -hmm. never going to be like their peers and that's okay. And then you, every milestone is hugely celebrated, hugely Mm -hmm. celebrated. Mm -hmm. Right. And you learn to just not compare yourself to anyone else and that that's okay. Yeah. And that you always just see your baby for who they are. Because they just, they will always be that way, right? Another woman wrote the realization that I can't control everything. And someone else echoed that, that they thought it made you more realistic. And no matter how much you try and do the right thing, you cannot control outcomes. And I think that's super true. It Mm -hmm. helps you to kind of go with the flow a little bit more um, and just see what may come. And because you believe in your child so fiercely. Mm-hmm. Right. That's beautiful. And thank you for speaking to that because I, I mean, this is really incredibly difficult to say the least to go through. And then people who are kind of facing this as like a possibility that their child will be in the NICU are unsure that their child sort of ends up there for however long. It's hard to know how you're going to get through something like that. And to hear from you and from the other people that do get through and find your way through and then find strength from it too is just, I think it at least kind of hopefully gives some sort of comfort or hope for people Mm. who are dealing with it. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. There's so much hope out there Mm -hmm. and there's strength in numbers because you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest thing. You're not alone and you have someone that can be there with you through it and Mm -hmm. remind you that to believe in your child because look at all they've done. Right, right, right. That's beautiful. So I'm sure there's a very long list of ways we can better support parents. (laughs) Can you give us a glimpse at that? Yeah. Well, number one, I love this Bonnie Badnock quote. She says, trauma is a relational experience and arises more from our sense of being alone with pain and fear than more from the event itself. Hmm. And so what that says to me is don't be alone. Mm -hmm. We need to have more peer support set up in the NICUs and counselors readily available. 100% so much more advocacy for change in the NICU environment to support zero separation for attachment and bonding to thrive and some psychoeducation on the effects of trauma on the brain and nervous system, right? And then supporting neuroplasticity, supporting your brain's ability to grow by developing programs like peer support groups, walking yoga for trauma, mindfulness workshops, massage events, teaching parents how to give their child massages. You know, preemies are usually born with, they're not born with completely functioning like vagal systems, but studies show that infant massage includes like really has it's actually been attributed to weight gain in mm-hmm. preemies and better vagal tone and also massage for parents mm-hmm. massage peer support and psychoeducation and connections to mental health mm-hmm. the most important thing we can do though is to prioritize women's health it's the most important factor in determining the quality of the mother offspring interaction mm-hmm. it's the mental and physical health of the mother 
that's true for all animals, rats, monkeys, humans, studies show it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Why we are not prioritizing this in the NICU is beyond me. Right, right. <laughs> so well, that is my short list. And yeah. if you'd like more, I have a class that goes dives really deeply into the what happens in the brain and the nervous system when we are having experiencing birth trauma and not just even birth trauma, but depression and anxiety and how relationships can really change our brains and our bodies and, and help us get out of this. And what's without that class? Diagnoses. It's interpersonal neurobiology of perinatal mood disorders and birth trauma. Oh, cool. Um, Where can people was, find that? Yeah, check my website, which is fawnmccool.com, F-A-W-N-M-C-C-O-O-L.com. And I will have things posted on there. It was previously taught through the PCC Climb Center. And I think I'm going to transition into teaching it through my own website soon. So, okay, yeah. So keep... And you can always sign up for information there. But yeah, it's so much. And I feel like all this experience has taught me is that these are easy changes. I'm not asking for anything huge here. Mm -hmm. You know, I think these are very easy things that we can change and that we could really (laughs) change the outcome of maternal mental health in the NICU with just a few things. Right, right. Absolutely. I mean, right. Getting some things better doesn't mean we have to overhaul the entire system, but systemic changes obviously would be helpful. I mean, to your point, just giving people the information they need so that they can understand what's going on for themselves is so empowering because otherwise we're all in the dark about this. You can't know everything all the time about every experience you're going through, but certainly like you're saying about women's health and specifically about in this transition, all of the things that can happen. Oh gosh, just giving someone the information is so simple and so powerful that that they don't have to be alone thinking that it's just them or they're, you know, that they're the only people who've had this experience. 100%. And then we all know that our mental health and how we are affects our child, right? And yeah. preemies have super high rates of behavioral issues, attention deficit disorder. Not to say that like this is because of a parent, mm-hmm. but we regulate each other. We just do. I mean, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I went to like an OT session one day with my daughter and she, who is a handful. <laughs> and mm-hmm. my OT looked at me and said, you know, I notice when you come in and you're very anxious, your daughter's really anxious. Did you notice you were having that kind of impact? And at first I was like, you jerk, like don't blame <laughs> me for her behavior. But then I was like, oh, yeah, she's right. I really need to get control on over this. Mm-hmm. It's really changed my relationship with her, just knowing that. Mm-hmm. And so these are the types of things that like, we're not only impacting our mamas and our da- papas, but we're like impacting our kids mm-hmm. and their outcomes. Right. And I th- thank you for saying that, right? It's not about making blame. It's just understanding how we impact each other and how we can do that in positive ways. It's not about oh, you're wrong or you did, you know, whatever. All, all the ways that we already anatomy. blame ourselves. <laughs> right, right. Right. Yeah. Right. What? There's no shame or blame in this. It is just the way we are created. We are mm-hmm. social beings and we are created to mimic each other's mm-hmm. arousal levels. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Thank you so much, Fawn, for sharing your story and being vulnerable with us so that, you know, we can really understand what it's like, especially for people who haven't had this experience to understand for a moment what it might be like for a parent going and their child going through the NICU. And I appreciate you saying that this is your experience and other people may have some different experiences, but I think what you're describing is pretty common in terms of leaving with all of this stress and feeling all of this strain for a while. And it's just 100%. There's so much healing, I think, for people who can identify with you, just hearing it out there and knowing that they're not alone. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And if you are in Portland, Oregon, I do practice in a group with women and men. We have an amazing male counselor as well who specializes in perinatal working with dads. Great. At Ayana Counseling. So we are here to help you through that here too. So, and yeah, your story does not have to be as crazy as mine to still have a post traumatic stress disorder diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Like, traumas are not comparable, right? Mm-hmm. Trauma mm-hmm. is trauma. And so I don't want anyone hearing all this, oh, well, she moved and she had this. And just to, sometimes we tend to minimize our experiences, like it's not as bad, but that's not the case. Right. Any experience with the NICU is a trauma. And to just know that. Right, right. Well, thank you for shedding light on this for us. And I appreciate your thank time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for this work you do. I am mm-hmm. so appreciative for all the things I've learned from your podcast. I Aww, love it. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> I'm so happy to be doing it. Thank you again for this really important discussion. I'm so glad to be bringing this to the forefront. And if you guys would like to get connected with Fawn, you can find her at fawnmccool.com or follow her on Facebook, Fawn McCool LCSW. And as usual, if you're just joining us and you have not yet subscribed to the Mom and Mind podcast, go to your favorite listening platform, click subscribe, and you'll be able to get every episode delivered straight to you each Monday when it comes out. We'd love for you to share this podcast and this information with anyone who you feel would benefit from it. And you can join us online at the Mom and Mind Connection Facebook page, on Instagram, or Twitter. Thanks for being with us, and until next time. By joining us today, you are part of the growing community of people who are aware and concerned for mothers and families during this beautiful and sometimes very difficult time of life. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. You can feel better. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Thank you for listening and being a part of the Mom and Mind community. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.